Well, we're beginning a brand new series uh, today, a six-week series on different aspects of who Jesus is. Uh, we're going to look at some of his character traits. Today, we're going to be looking at the idea of courage and how Jesus was courageous. Uh, May 21st, we're going to examine how Jesus stands as the greatest teacher in all of history. And then on uh, June 25th, we're going to look at Jesus as the centerpiece of history. In between there, we have Mother's Day and Father's Day. And so we're going to look at how Jesus loved his mom. And then we're going to look at how Jesus loved his dad. And finally, on uh, Scholarship Sunday, we're going to kind of zoom out and look at how the love of Jesus transforms us as people. All right, so today we begin with the courage of Jesus. And maybe when you think about Jesus, maybe that's a character trait you've never really associated with Jesus. We see Jesus depicted in paintings. Uh, This is a pretty famous one. It's called The Head of Christ by Warner Salmon, painted back in 1940. And I I look at that painting, and courage does not leap off the canvas at me. Uh, He looks a little bit wimpy. He looks like he stayed indoors his entire life. He doesn't look very, maybe, Jewish. And he doesn't look very rugged. He doesn't look like a carpenter. And if you think about it, Jesus, up until the age of 30, worked in his earthly father Joseph's carpenter shop, and he didn't have power tools. Guaranteed, Jesus was not a wimp. And when we read about his public ministry in the Gospels, for three and a half years, he walked the entire length of the country of Israel, up and down, up and down, outdoors, tons of miles, putting on those sandals. Now, Jesus' courage isn't just a physical thing. His character, his compassionate heart, those are the things that gave him immense courage. Philip Yancey, in his award-winning book, The Jesus I Never Knew, talks about his changing impressions of Jesus from when he was a little kid as he went towards being an adult. Yancey recalls, he says, I first got acquainted with Jesus when I was a child singing Jesus loves me. In Sunday school, addressing bedtime prayers to dear Lord Jesus, watching <clears throat> excuse me, watching Bible club teachers move cutout figures across a flannel graph board. He says I associated Jesus with Kool-Aid, sugar cookies and gold stars for attendance. I remember especially one image from Sunday school, an oil painting that hung on a concrete block wall. Jesus had long flowing hair. Unlike that of any man I knew, his face was thin and handsome, his skin waxen and milky white. In his arms, Jesus cradled a small sleeping lamb. I imagined myself as that lamb, safe and comforted beyond all telling. Jesus, in my early years, was someone kind and reassuring with no sharp edges at all. A Mr. Rogers before the age of children's television. Out of such a portrayal, Jesus of Jesus, no one would ever say one of his dominant characteristics was courage. Years later in college, as the hippie era was in full swing and people were questioning the established church, Philip Yancey recalls, he says, questions now loomed that had never occurred to me in childhood. For example, how could telling people to be nice to each other get a man crucified? What government would execute Mr. Rogers' or Captain Kangaroo. Exactly. And if you think about it, 
If Jesus never confronted injustice, condemned religious violence, or challenged religiosity at its worst, if Jesus never stood up for the poor, the widows, the outcasts, the foreigners, then why, at the end of his time on earth, was he whipped, beaten, and crucified? Jesus is, as we're going to discover today, actually a person of incredible, immense, off-the-charts courage. And he was determined to accomplish the will of God the Father, no matter the cost to himself. So we're going to look at three different accounts in the Gospels where Jesus displays amazing courage. The first glimpse of Jesus' courage is in John chapter 8. If you have a print Bible, I encourage you to open it and turn there. John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Uh, if you have the app on your smartphone or the Ocean View app, you can turn the Bible part on. It's also on the screen. John 8, 1 through 6. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. It's quite a scene. And it becomes pretty obvious as we read those verses that these Pharisees, they don't care about this woman at all. She is simply a pawn to them to use to try to trap Jesus. They've completely lost sight of the things that God really and truly cares about, like compassion and justice. After all, it takes two to tango. So where exactly is the man in this scene? Why wasn't he dragged in front of them? He mysteriously seems to be absent. Many painters have attempted to capture the scene on canvas. I think this picture by the 16th century Italian painter Lorenzo Lotto, this one hangs in the Louvre in Paris. And I kind of like it. You can kind of see Jesus. He, he's got his hands there. He's, he's shielding. He's protecting this woman. So what's the trap? How is this a trap for Jesus? Well, on the one hand, if Jesus says, yeah, I know she broke God's law, and I know it says in black and white the consequences are that she should be stoned to death. She should have rocks hurled at her until she dies. Now, you guys, come on. Everyone just calm down. You know I'm about love and peace. Just have some mercy on her, okay? If Jesus was to say something like that, then several things happen. Number one, he contradicts himself. This is the guy who said in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So if Jesus said, you know what, let's just ignore what the law has to say, he would be contradicting what he's already said. And the Pharisees, they would take a response like that, and they would proclaim it loud and clear for everyone to hear. See, 
We have exposed him. He breaks God's laws given to Moses. He is tearing down what is most special, the traditions of our people. He's destroying our identity. At that point, the crowds would turn against Jesus and nobody would be listening to him. If on the other hand, Jesus says, you're right, the law is clear. She deserves to be stoned to death. Then everything he had become known for, his grace, his love, his compassion, standing up courageously against the extreme religiosity of his day, all of those statements and actions are invalidated. He loses his message and he loses his audience. It's a trap. It's a pickle for sure. So what, was, what does Jesus do? Well, he does something really unexpected. We pick it up in verse, the end of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Nobody knows what Jesus was writing in the dust. There's been lots of speculation. But it doesn't particularly matter because his straightforward and piercing reply is enough to stop this charade. Again, our friend Philip Yancey is helpful. He says, The Pharisees have caught a woman in the very act of adultery, a crime that calls for the death penalty. What would Jesus have them do, they asked, hoping to trap him in a conflict between morality and mercy. Perhaps prostitutes, tax collectors, and other known sinners responded to Jesus so readily because at some level they knew that they were wrong and to them God's forgiveness looked very appealing. As C.S. Lewis has said, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the ultra-greedy, the self-righteous, these are the people in danger of that. So if the story stops at this point, we would be left with what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Jesus stands up for the woman. He stands in the face of hypocritical religion. But at this point, if this is where the story ends, he is ultimately condoning her sin. He's saying it's okay what you've been doing. But what Jesus understands deeper in a more real way than you and I do is that sin is the enemy of us all. That sin destroys our lives. That's why God says, walk in my ways. Live lives of goodness, honesty, self-control. Do the right things because I invented you. I've got the blueprints for life. I know how life works best. So Jesus doesn't offer the woman cheap grace. He gives her his grace. Listen to these amazing words in verses 9 through 11. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see what Jesus did, and it took an immense amount of courage, he saved her. He literally actually saved her physical life. 
But in his reply, Jesus also saved the rest of her life. He turned her life around. She experienced incredible compassion, incredible forgiveness, and that was what she needed on that day. But Jesus looked down through the years and he looked at the rest of her life. And he said, if you want to experience life at, the, at its best, life at its finest, the way God intended, he says, you've got to go and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. What Jesus so beautifully tells that woman is exactly what he tells every single one of us. Neither do I condemn you. You know, when the tax evader finally comes clean and confesses that they owe hundreds of thousands of dollars to the government, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but from this point in your life, pay your taxes. When the young couple says, you know what? We don't care. We're going to live our life however we want. We're not going to do it God's way. We're not going to wait until marriage. We're going to sleep together right now. And then all of a sudden, life gets really complicated. Maybe a pregnancy comes along that they weren't anticipating. Some other complication. Then they come around. They turn around. They make a, a 180 change. They come back to Jesus. And Jesus says to that young couple, he says, Neither do I condemn you. But now, go and get married. Raise your children within the loving protection of a family. When the person who is a relentless gossip is finally confronted by a web and network of their own secrets and lies, when all of those social relationships come crashing down and they finally turn around and they come back to Jesus, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now stop gossiping and start telling the truth. Jesus shows courage. He stands up for this woman caught in adultery. Jesus shows courage in shielding and protecting her. Jesus shows courage in offering her real grace and a command to change her life. It's the perfect blend of mercy and morality. And the woman's life was saved and transformed because of it. Now we shift into Jesus' one-on-one -on -one showdown with the devil in the wilderness. Our second example of Jesus' courage. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. You love the Bible? Like, that's such an understatement. 40 days! At the end, he was hungry. He was starving! The, de the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here. 
For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You know, one of the devil's more interesting and effective strategies is to allow himself to be made out to be a silly cartoon figure. There we go. He's got his little pitchfork, he's got a tail, he looks kind of silly, pretty goofy and somewhat harmless. And if the devil can get people to laugh at him, get people to dismiss him as non-existent, maybe the creation of an earlier time period in history when people weren't quite as aware and were more superstitious, then he's gained almost total impunity to get to work on humanity and to drag us down. Dealing with the devil or any of his demonic helpers is no joke, and it's no laughing matter. For Jesus to face down the devil one-on-one, face-to-face, the way he did, took an unbelievable amount of courage on Jesus' part. I think I've shared the story of my uh, demonic encounter I had in grad school, but I think it bears worth, worth repeating today. Uh, so I was in grad school. I was in my second year. I was in Vancouver. I was living in a uh, basement suite of this uh, super wonderful Christian couple, and uh, they let me rent their basement suite for dirt cheap. And uh, so I was in there, and I had studied for several hours, ate dinner, went for a little walk, and then I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And so in my little room down there, uh, which was kind of below ground, but up above, just kind of at ground level, was a small window. And there was a street light that shone right in, and it annoyed me all the time. They had this flimsy little curtain, and it didn't block the light hardly at all. And uh, I don't know why I just didn't get a new curtain. I don't know, lazy or something. And, uh, but this light always annoyed me. It would come streaming in there. Everything else is dark. And uh, so I'm laying there, and I'm starting to go to sleep. And I can still see that light coming in. All of a sudden, the room went absolutely pitch black, as dark as I've ever experienced. And all of a sudden, there was an absolutely crushing weight on my chest. Probably like 2,000 pounds, it felt like. Squished the air right out of me. And instantly I knew I was being oppressed by a demonic force. And there was just this incredible sense of evil and fear in the room. Everything was pitch black and I couldn't breathe. So I summoned up all my years of theological training and prayed this brilliant prayer. Jesus, help. And in a few seconds, all of a sudden, the room totally lightened up. The weight came off my chest, and I could breathe again. And there was an amazing sense of love and peace in that room that replaced the fear and the evil. That's never happened to me before. It never happened to me since. And in the weeks after, I had time to think about it and process it. I was like, what was the point of that? And I came to the conclusion that the devil was trying to discourage me. But what it ended up doing, as I thought about it, as I processed it, I thought, you know what? As goofy and flawed as I am, he thinks I'm a threat. Huh, that's pretty cool. 
And I think what the devil intended for discouragement ended up being encouragement. You know, this passage where Jesus faces these temptations that the devil throws in his face, worth a sermon all on its own. But I want to grasp this morning the simple point that for Jesus to face the devil one-on-one, face-to-face, took an incredible amount of courage. And it's fascinating to see what Jesus does as every one of these temptations comes up. Jesus quotes scripture. He quotes the word of God. He puts it in the devil's face. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, all right, I'm human. I'm exposed to the same weaknesses, the same flaws, the same temptations that every single human being is faced with. And just like people, I have access to the Word of God. I have access to God's incredibly powerful words. And when temptation is at its strongest, its most intense, I'm going to remember those words of God and I'm going to use them in that fight. All right, so there's two examples of Jesus' courage. And for our final point, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 22. This is one of my absolute favorite accounts in all of the Gospels about Jesus' life and ministry. And once again, people are attempting to trap Jesus. So we're going to read about it. Matthew 22, 15 and 16. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. All right, so right away we can see that there are two groups trying to trap Jesus. The Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a hyper-religious group. They felt themselves the guardians of the religious tradition of their country. Now, if you were with us during the winter spring and you heard any of the sermons on the book of Jeremiah, you remember that Israel, 550 years prior to Jesus, had been judged for their sin, their idolatry, their rebellion. After a billion chances, God finally judged them. Babylon came, destroyed the city, took the people captive and took them off to Babylon. And they stayed there in that foreign power for almost 70 years. Now that experience of being in exile in a foreign country under the domination of another ruler, that left a huge lesson, a huge effect in the nation of Israel, one they never ever forgot. And they decided, they said, you know what? We never, ever want to experience that again. We never want to go through something like that again. And so we're never going to break God's laws. In fact, we don't want to even get close to breaking God's laws. And so what they did is they took God's commands, of which the Ten Commandments are the heart and the most famous, they took those and they surrounded them with a whole bunch of other rules and laws that they thought up. And they thought, now here's our idea. If we don't break the ones we invented, we won't even get to the ones that God put in there. So then we'll be safe. We'll never make God angry again. We'll never go into exile. Everything was good. But unfortunately, like everything in life, the pendulum swung so far. And their reason for being became don't break the rules. 
They went all out in their religious devotion to keep all of God's commands. Unfortunately, after 550 years of this, they had become so extreme and added so many rules upon rules, creating what they hoped to be that fence around God's laws, that by the time of Jesus, it had led these Pharisees to get incredibly lost in their own religiosity. Their desire to keep the rules, to keep God happy, <coughs> had become all important, way more important than showing compassion, love, or generosity. So Jesus comes along and he confronts all of the religious hypocrisy. And he essentially says, you guys may have started off with good intentions and from a good motivation, but where it has taken you now is actually really, really far from a living, dynamic, vital relationship with God. You are repelling people away from God. All of your rules are such a turnoff, people aren't wanting to put their faith in the one true God. And as you might guess, Jesus' message and his confrontation of these Pharisees was not well received. Now, they have come to trap him. He has offended them repeatedly. He's messed them up, and they are out to get Jesus. That's one group, the Pharisees. Now, who's the second group? It says the Herodians. Who are they? Well, as the name suggests, they are employees and devotees of King Herod. And if you know anything about uh, that time period in history, King Herod was an absolute incredible egomaniac. Um, yeah, he was quite the guy. When I got to go to Israel in 2012, every single place you go in Israel, they're like, and that giant monument, that was built by Herod. And this place over here, that was built by Herod. And Herod just taxed the Jewish people almost to death. He drained their resources and he, his whole plan was to build huge things, palaces, racetracks, monuments to himself. He had such an ego problem that he wanted these things to outlive him and outlast him. So, we've not only got the religious gang out to get Jesus, we've got the secular authorities under the king out to get Jesus. So we've got these two groups attempting to trap Jesus. This sounds like a really fun afternoon for Jesus. What was their first strategy? Well, they begin with a little flattery, a little buttering up. Matthew twenty-two sixteen. 16. He says, Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Now, I might have been drawn in by people's flattery. I like it when people praise me, flatter me. But Jesus just kind of looks at them probably folds his arms. He's like, really? Really, you guys? And his words certainly say this to that effect. Matthew twenty-two eighteen. 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? All right, so what's the trap? You're asking yourself. Well, here it is in the first, second half of verse 17. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Next logical question, what is a poll tax and why is it paid to Caesar, the Roman Empire? Well, the poll tax was levied on subject peoples, not on Roman citizens. So when the Romans went and conquered a nation, those were subject people. And they had a special tax 
levied on them. Now, the Romans had conquered Israel. It was known in Jesus' day as the Roman province of Judea. They were the subjects. The Romans were in charge. They were the rulers, and they charged this extra tax. Now, if that had been the only tax that the Jewish people were charged, maybe they could have lived with it. But there was the Roman tax. There was Herod's taxes. There was the temple tax. These poor people had tons of taxes, and it was absolutely killing them. They were becoming so desperately poor, people were starting to starve to death. And you can imagine, <coughs> you can imagine in an environment like that, that resentment, revolt would beginning to be built. And that actually happened. 35 years after Jesus' death in AD 70, all of Jerusalem and Israel began to revolt and the Romans came in and absolutely crushed it. One of the worst slaughters in history. So if Jesus says, yes, the right thing to do is to pay your taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees can go proclaim to the crowds of Jewish people, Jesus supports the evil Romans. He says you should pay the tax to Caesar. That is going to lose every ounce of Jesus' audience. No one's going to listen to him. They're like, well, he clearly he's in line with the Romans. He supports them. This Jesus that they look to as a potential Messiah, as their Savior, supports those evil Romans. Popular opinion would flip. Everyone would ignore Jesus at best or crucify him at worst. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax to Caesar, then the gang from Herod is standing there and they will run back to Herod and say, this guy is out to cause a rebellion. He's telling the people not to pay the taxes to Caesar. And then the Romans will come and destroy us. Herod, you've got to kill this Jesus now. It's a trap. There's no way out. Either answer ends in disaster. Yes or no, Jesus is either doomed to irrelevancy or he's doomed to death as a rebel. No matter what happens in life, in his teachings and his message will be lost. So what would you do? Thank you so much, Bill. What answer would you come up with to avoid this trap? There's no way out. Now, maybe you're smarter than I am. Maybe you could conceive a way out. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Here's his answer. Jesus says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. The coin carried the image of Caesar stamped onto it. And so Jesus says, If Caesar wants a tax, give him back his money. It's got his image on it. But Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience and from day one at their birth they had been pounded into them that at creation God created men and women, male and female. He created them in His image. And so when Jesus says give the coins back to Caesar because they have His image, but He says give to God what is God's, He meant you, yourself. You have God's image stamped into you. Give your entire being, your life, over to God. It was a perfect way out of an impossible trap. Brilliant and courageous. 
So I hope this morning you've seen in these three snapshots, three examples of Jesus being courageous, standing up and shielding a woman from her hypocritical religious attackers, standing up to the temptations of the devil face to face, shutting him down by quoting the word of God, standing up to the subtle traps and deceit of his accusers and challenging all of us to give our entire selves to God. What I want us to grasp today is that Jesus always models for us the character traits he wants us to have as his followers. Let me say that one more time. Jesus always models for us the character traits he wants us to have as his followers. It's an incredible thing that Jesus does. Jesus calling us to be men and women of courage. We are reminded that we take our inspiration and model from Jesus and we take our power to be courageous from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I want to close by reading an amazing verse, 2 Timothy 1.7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Let's be people of courage who follow Jesus. Amen? Greta, come pray for us.